It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. (laughs) All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. As always, uh, this is David, one of your hosts. And the other host for this podcast is my good buddy, Chris Craig. Chris, how are you? Man, I'm doing well, Dave. How are you? I'm good. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, I think we've only man, we only done one of these in about the past four or five months. Um, so yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We did the Bruce we did. Springs, did the Bruce Springsteen one in the top twenty one. Oh so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, anyway, we haven't been doing them a whole lot, so but a couple other ideas coming. Yeah, so we've got some stuff in the works. Um, before we get started, I want to ask you to follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed and like our Facebook page and uh, follow us on Instagram. We'd greatly appreciate that. So our guest this week is uh, is uh, a guy that uh, I'm fortunate to say I've gotten to know over the last year or so. Um, his name was first brought to my attention when I started the, the Black Crows podcast and somebody messaged me and said, hey, you need to get Jeff Dunn on. And I'm like, who's Jeff Dunn? And they're like, he did the sound for the Crows for from 1990 to 2000. And uh, so I found him on Facebook and then saw that he was a friend with uh, our good buddy Todd Poole. So I messaged Todd and I was like, you know Jeff Dunn? And he's like, man, that's Duck Dunn's son. Yeah, I know him. He said he's from here in Memphis. So anyway, I reached out to, to Jeff uh, probably about a year or so ago. And uh, he came on State of America and told a bunch of tales of, of working with the Crows and then... Um, uh, the late Black Crows keyboard player Eddie Harsh. We did a tribute to him, and we had Jeff come on and talk to him, and that was a uh, that was a very very special uh, episode. Um, it, I, it really moved a lot of people, so I, I appreciate him coming on. But we're going to have him on this podcast, and we'll try to steer away from the Crows as much as possible because we've already we've already done that song and dance. Uh, it's a real honor to uh, welcome uh, Jeff Dunn to the podcast. Jeff, hey guys, how you doing? Man, we are doing great. It's, uh, it's good to Excellent. see you. Good to see you again, and good to talk to you again. Yeah, I was just sitting here in the studio, even with all these lights around me and all this mood stuff. I just wasn't getting it, so it's a good time to just quit and <laughs> hang out with people for a while. <laughs> well, um, Jeff, uh, we're get to your uh, get to your career uh, in the in the music business here in a second, but um, uh, I, there's really no way to talk about your your music career without at first touching on who your father was because that that he played a huge role in your life for people that don't know why don't you tell everybody who your dad was my dad was a pioneer of electric bassists i like to call him and his name was donald nicknamed duck dunn from memphis tennessee and he's in the rock and roll hall of fame 
Oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. And um, he has a couple of Grammys, too. And if you've ever uh, watched the Blues Brothers, he's prominent in the movie The Blues Brothers. He's very well known in the Blues Brothers. Most people know him for the hair and the pipe. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the quips. <laughs> yeah, so many people, when, uh, when we had you on the Crows podcast, are like, man, his dad was in the Blues Brothers. I love that. Well, if anyone ever asks me about him or, or I'm trying to explain to them who Dab was, that's always the go-to because most everyone has seen the Blues Brothers. But you know what? Nowadays, you'd be surprised. There's a lot that haven't. <laughs> it's kind of old now, but it, most people go, man, that's my all-time favorite movie. You know, and it, it was a, it's a great movie. So obviously, Jeff, growing up in Memphis, and, and your dad uh, cut his teeth at Stax Records, and pretty much you can go to you can go to his Wikipedia page, and, and pretty much anybody that's anybody he he has played with or, or you know done something with. So you grew up in Memphis, and obviously you grew up in in a home around music. At what age did you realize, hey, my dad really is a somebody, and like you know is is well known, and yeah, uh, probably about seven. At first, we didn't know what he did. We just knew he was gone a lot. And uh, going down the road in the car, uh, you know, Mom, what's Dad doing? He's out making money. I I took it literally like he was printing money and making coins, you know. And then the next week later or two, we're in the car, and a song comes on the radio that he played on, but it's an AM radio that's not that (laughs) full bandwidth. And she's like, there's your dad right there on that song. And we're like, yeah. And she goes, yeah, hear the bass, boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, no, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Then we started, she took us around to the studio. So that's when I started to figure it out. When we go to Stax Records and uh, she would take us in there to visit sometimes in the afternoon when he'd be taking a break or something like that. And at first I didn't like it at all uh, because it was just, I just remember uh, because Stax, they used old equipment from the movie. It was a movie theater originally. So they had this huge speaker and multi-cell Altec like horn thing in the control room as a monitor. And it was just the scariest looking speaker you ever saw in your life. And I, and they always cranked it up nice and loud. So I, I got to, I figured out, watch those tape reels. As soon as they start moving, hold your ears. And then I ended up doing what I do now, which is kind of funny because I never would have thought that back then. But once we started to get a little understanding of what he did and started to meet the guys around the studio, like Booker and Al Jackson and Steve Cropper and all the guys, they were very nice to us. And uh, it was a lot of fun going there. But it was like I didn't realize how unique it was at at the time uh, compared to most any other kid's dad and what their jobs were like, you know, to me, it was just normal, you know? Now, Chris stacks, isn't very far from your house, is it? No, I've only been one time and I want to go back. It was, it's uh, it's a cool thing to see. I'm, I'm, I'm in Midtown, so I'm what? 15 minutes from it tops. Yeah. it's, Um, It's great. Yeah, cool place. It's it's a shame that the original one got torn down, and, and then it was an empty lot for a long time, and then they finally rebuilt it. But at the same time, they did it, so that's the main thing. And uh, I always love taking the tour, and uh, that movie they show at the very beginning is a lot of fun to watch, too. There's a lot of footage on that film they show at the beginning I've never seen before. But uh, I, like, I, 
I, I, yeah, I definitely need to go back because I don't even remember that. I mean, it's been probably, man, it's probably been at least, 15, it's probably been 15 years since I've Tell been there. You know me. Tell them you know me, they'll let you in for free. <laughs> hey, I will. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Jeff, before before we get, get started to like how you got started in your career, for people that don't know, just tell people just a couple of the songs and, and, and groups that your dad has recorded with. Oh, well, a lot of it was with Stacks, uh, Booker T and MGs, Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, Eddie Floyd. Uh, and then you get into like, uh, Tom Petty, the, the blues brothers, Eric Clapton, Neil Young. And then there's just some, uh, Bill Withers. I mean, it's, it, there's a huge, uh, muddy waters, fathers and sons. It's, it's really an incredible list. I don't even know where to start. I can't, I, I, you know, that's off the top of my head, and there's so many more, so many. So at what age did you start playing music? I picked it up at probably about 14, just because they're around the house, and I'm watching him. He, he always used to love, love to play with records, and that's how he learned to play, uh, was by just emulating people. He didn't know how to read music. He played by ear. So, I mean, he knew how to write his own charts out, which we did just find recently, his Sweet Home Chicago chart that he originally wrote for the Blues Brothers. So we framed it and put it up on the wall. But, uh, yeah, you know, uh, he, he showed me, uh, learn to play with records. So I would kind of try it, and I'd get it kind of halfway, thinking I had it, and then he would come in, and he'd say, well, you almost got it, but here's really what it is. And I'd be like, man, I didn't realize I was that far off, you know. But uh, that's how he showed me to play. And I was pretty serious about it up until, you know, I started doing sound, which is a whole other story and how I ended up in that whole uh, area of the thing. But, uh, yeah, I went on to playing bands and stuff in high school. And then my brother, he played guitar really well. Uh, Mike was a, a great guitar player, and as a matter of fact, uh, I have his Hammer guitar that John Belushi had made for him, uh, and John had one made for himself uh, because the Hammer was in Chicago where they were filming the Blues Brothers movie back in 1979, and my brother really wanted a guitar with a humbucking pickup in it, and my dad kept telling him, he found this guitar he liked at a music store, and my dad said, no, you can't have it. John Belushi, he's having one made for you. And, and we're like, yeah, right, Dad. Okay. Uh, when's that going to be here? Uh-huh. But then one day we came home from school, and there was a guitar case on the kitchen table, and it was there. And it was closed, and Mom and Dad weren't even in the house. So we walked over to it, and we opened it up. And I don't know if you've seen a picture of it, but it's Candy Apple Red with Mike Dunn and Inlay on the fretboard, you know, sharp little guitar and he was just blown away and he, he loved that guitar but to kind of fast forward into uh, you know me being a musician and dad was of course a musician and at the time i thought maybe that was the way i was gonna go but god the competition was so heavy back then in the 80s and the 70s uh there's just so many people out there doing i mean guitars and bass and drums were the thing back then you know now it isn't as popular it seems as it used to be amongst the younger set but uh <laughs> now they like these uh boxes that have like a million colored buttons on them and stuff <laughs> but uh yeah uh 
what happened was my dad, after the Blues Brothers, uh, you know, things got a little thin for a little while, but not too bad. But he got a, a call from Tom Dowd, who's a great producer, and uh, Tom Dowd from Layla and all that stuff, you know, what very well-known producer. I found out recently he even did the uh, audio for the uh, Stax Vault tour in 67. I didn't even realize that. I spotted him on the home videotape that I found that I've been uh, digitizing and uh, found out it was Tom Dowd in the shot that I saw. I thought it was him, but I got it confirmed by his daughter, actually. So that was cool. Uh, but, yeah, uh, Tom got dad in with Clapton so uh, on the 83 thing because they weren't really getting it in the studio. And, and Tom suggested just a change in lineup. So they did it. So next thing you know, dad's working with Eric Clapton and he's in production rehearsals now for the tour in Portland. And my brother, unfortunately, Michael Van Dunn, uh, who at the time was 18, was on his way home at night and uh, lost control of the car and went off the road and had a fatal wreck. So it was a sudden thing. Uh, my dad had to fly home for the funeral and the services and all that. And then uh, he said, why don't you... Uh, you want to come out on the road with us? And I said, sure. You know, and I was the only other sibling and he goes, your mom's going to come with me. You know, why don't you come with us? And I said, yeah, why not? I, I, I wouldn't mind getting away from here and kind of seeing something different for a little while and a nice little change, you know, why not? Plus who are, who else wouldn't want to go out on a big tour as 19 year old boy? Uh, not really knowing though what you're gonna do yet. That was the tricky part. <laughs> so I get out there, and uh, they had already gotten there a day or two before me. So the day I got there, I met some of the crew, but not all the crew. So they're doing the first show of the tour, and uh, at the end of during the show, I'm walking around, roving around with my pass on, and I'm feeling all empowered because i'd never really had a pass you know and this is a big rock show you know and i'm just like to me this is all a little bit new i love rock and roll music but i never was like part of that you know that big of a thing so i'm standing out by the soundboard and i'm watching the sound engineer do what he does and i thought that was pretty neat and then i'm at the end of the show i'm on stage i went over and grabbed dad's bass and told him uh or I just went over and got it and started putting it in the case. And, and Lee Dixon, who was Eric's guitar tech at the time, I hadn't met him yet. So he comes running over at me. What are you doing? What are you doing? He didn't know who I was. He thought I was like a local stagehand or something. He's like, you're not supposed to touch that. You know, and I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. It belongs to my dad. He goes, oh, you must be Jeff. And I was like, yeah, I'm Jeff. And he goes, oh, cool. You know, so about that time, the sound engineer, uh, his name was John Gadenzi who uh very good engineer and these were mainly all english guys too by the way from tasco sound uh that that's a company that started over in the uk and then moved over offices into the united states and at the time they had this brand new system called the harwell system which was kind of the big pa that everyone was talking about at the time that came over from england so anyway skin the engineer that's his nickname he said hey jeff How'd you like to work with us on the sound crew? You know, because dad's bass thing, I mean, really, it's not that complicated. He's got an amp and a bass, and that's about it, and a spare one, you know. And I said, sure. I pointed up at the lighting system up, hanging over our heads, and I said, I don't want to climb around on that shit up there. <laughs> so, 
but I was always interested in speakers and amps and always been a little bit of a gearhead and that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, I really had no clue what I was doing though. I'd never dealt with a big PA system before, much less even a small one. You know, I was always a band guy, not a sound man. So I basically was thrown in there and learned backwards. Uh, you know, most people start small and work their way up. I was thrown into a big thing, plugging in cables, not even knowing what they were doing. I just knew which one went where and what colors matched or numbers or whatever, but then started to figure out as the time went on, I got more of an understanding, but I was working my tail off in the beginning. I didn't even, they didn't even have a bunk in the bus left over for me to sleep in. I had to wait until everyone else went to bed and then I would find room on a couch and fall asleep there. And then in the morning, it's like, come on, Jeff, let's go. You know? So it was just a whole new beginning for me. And, and it just opened an, a, the unfortunate thing about my brother is so unfortunate, but in the end, it was a gift for me because I found something, you know, and really, I don't know where I'd be now if that wouldn't have happened, you know, who knows, you know, but uh, I took the opportunity and, and ran with it as fast as I could. Hey, before we go on more about what you what you do and, and your line of work, the career you've had, as you talk about your dad, you talk about his bass and his influential play and the sound that he had. You've mentioned Booker T and the MGs, and I, I don't know how many people are familiar with with them. But your dad did he did he play on, and then part two did he write that bass line in Green Onions? No, neither one. Neither one. Okay, I was just curious because that that was gonna say if there's any way to explain to define somebody yeah. playing. Well, there's other bass lines that really would define them even more than Green Onions. But yeah, unfortunately. There's one thing about Green Onions is uh, the, the Booker T and the MGs had uh, uh, another bass player in the beginning named Louis Steinberg. And Louis is a great guy. Uh, we met him at the, uh, at the uh, Grammy Awards when they got the Lifetime Achievement Award back in 2007, I think it was. Really nice man. But Louis was a little older than the rest of them. And Louis also had like a home gig, you know, he was a teacher and had interest at home he wasn't interested in going out on tour on the road and doing the all the work that they were was going to be expected of him he didn't have time for it okay. he wasn't doing what he was doing so he pulled out after green onions and then dad came in so dad's probably played it way many more times than <laughs> louis did but he did not write it uh but he did you know there's a lot of other songs that, you know, he had bass riffs on that are, you know, uh, Green Onions is, it's so funny because whenever people like, who's that Booker T? And I go, you know, you've heard it on a million commercials at a baseball game. That song with the organ, you know, bah, 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 and oh yeah, yeah, that song, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, and it's really not, it's, it's iconic. It's not even the most, the, it's not the most complicated bass line for sure. But well, you know what, Jimmy Jimmy Vaughn, uh, I worked with him back in uh, like 2006 to maybe eight or so. He told me, he goes, Jeff, he goes, the first time I heard that song on the radio, my life changed. So there you go. I mean, yeah. that, that tells you. And if you listen to it with an open mind and think of it as something you'd never heard before in your life, especially way back then, it was pretty, pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can you can hear him on all those Otis Redding uh, albums, <laughs> uh, a whole bunch of them. 
Oh um, man, and I, lo- I love Otis Redding. Well, and 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 Dad's favorite were always the those the the Otis live stuff, like at live at Monterey when Otis gets going and he's like, "Do it one more time," and you do it one more time, and do it one more time. <laughs> and my dad used to play that. You know, he he was horrible with the stereo. He just crank it up. He had just I still got it. His old Marantz with the JBL speak big JBL speakers, and uh, he he uh he would you know just get all animated in the house and just play it over again and over again, you know, and he just like moved flailing his arms around, you know, like he, he just could, you know, it was a sad day when Otis left us, uh, even though I, I remember it, but I didn't feel it because I was still too young at the time. But I remember looking at all the long faces and, you know, it's like the day I remember when Jimi Hendrix died, and I remember the day when uh, Jim Morrison died. You know, all three of them. You know, so. But yeah, Otis was God cut way too short. Yeah, that's the thing. Short. A lot of people don't realize that. That you know, I told my girlfriend that said he he died when he was twenty six, and that just blew yeah. her away. You yeah, know, it, it, people don't know that. Most I think a lot of it's not it's not really common knowledge, and his voice certainly sounded older. Yeah, he did. And, and and like at Monterey, I mean, that was like a hippie fest uh, festival, pretty much. And dad, dads, when they came out, man, they just had the crowd, man, like by the by the B.A.L.L.S., you know, and uh, they were like, and I, I said, Dad, two things I asked him. I said, first, Monterey, what was it that you guys commanded it so good? He goes, it's what we didn't do that made us do it so good. <laughs> Compared to most of the other musicians there that day, you so know? that's that's uh, the show where Hendrix set his guitar on fire, isn't it? I think so. Well, yeah. And the album, there was an album that had one side with Hendrix and the other side was Otis on the same album. But the other thing I was going to tell you is like watching the Stax Volt '67 DVD or, or video, which I highly recommend anyone has. If you've never seen it, you got to watch it. It's on YouTube too. Stax Volt 67 Norway. Uh, that footage is just incredible, man. They're so on fire. They're young. They're fresh. I've, Dad said he's never couldn't even believe it was him when he he didn't see it for a long time after they did it, and then finally it came out. He's just like, "Holy wow, look at me!" You know. <laughs> but what I was gonna say is, uh, I asked him. I said, "Dad, what was it that got you guys so fired up on those shows?" He goes. They got some pretty good beer over there, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, Jeff, I, I told you when you were on State of America after after you'd kind of told us your story. I was like, you know, I'm sure uh, you're the. A lot of people are very, very envious of you because I'm sure a lot of people start out mixing in these small clubs, dingy clubs for very little pay, and you like your first pay, your first gig is with Eric Clapton, and if I remember correctly, uh, what you told me after Clapton is when you got on the Priest tour. Is that right? Right, I did the Clapton thing, and then Tasco. I didn't realize when I was out with Clapton, and this was good for me because earlier, before my brother passed, I mean, we were metalheads. We loved Judas Priest. We loved Ozzy. We were playing all that heavy stuff. You know, we were playing Screaming for Vengeance nonstop. That tape almost never left the tape deck. And uh, uh, what I was going to say is Tasco was also a big favorite of all the heavy metal bands. That Harwell system was very loud. So uh, I did the Clapton thing, and then John, or Skin, the engineer, said, Jeff, I'm going to be doing Judas Priest after that. No, it was Black Sabbath, Born Again Tour. 
with Ian Gillen singing and Bev Bevan on drums. That was the Devil Baby Baby tour. Yeah. They had the midget, and he wore the devil suit. Or, I mean, not the midget, but the little guy. He was actually an actor. He said he was in Star Wars movie, too. But that guy, he was traveling with us on the tour bus. You know, all he had to do was get on that suit and do his little stage thing. By the time we get done at night on the bus, he'd be so drunk, man. You got to watch out for that little guy. When he gets hammered, man, he's a tough little son of a bitch. <laughs> how, how, on, that, on that tour, how receptive were the fans? How what? How receptive? How receptive were the fans of that tour? Different that, vocalist again. I mean, Sabbath fans are pretty diehard, but I do remember the first part of the tour, we had a bigger production than the second part. They cut the production to save some money because the tickets weren't doing as good as they wished they would. Oh, that's the tour too. Get a load of this. I know where you're going with this. I the think Stone I know where you're going. Hand. Yep, I know yep. you're going to do that. With the Stonehenge, we had it in Ottawa, right? And and we had three days in Ottawa of, of production rehearsals. All tours do that. You set up in the first gig and you spend three days there getting all your shit together. Then you do the first show on the third night or the fourth night. Then you pack up and go to the next city and the tour is underway, right? That night, we did the damn show. It took them until... The, the trailer, these Stonehenge pieces were like not break downable. They were huge. And they had this trailer they brought from England that had roll up sides like this fabric stuff, like tarp. And you, they, and you had to get like 20 guys to carry these damn big ass pieces all the way up the ramp to the truck and then try to stuff them in there. We, we basically got to the next gig two hours late in the Stonehenge pieces. We never, ever saw them again. Now, we saw that, little ones that were on the stage around the amps, but the big pieces that hung behind the stage, never saw them ever again. Then Spinal Tap. That's what I was going to ask you. Wasn't it based on, then that would inspire Spinal Tap, that scene. Been, had to have been. And not only that, but if you look at the medallion from the Judas Priest tour with the horns, that looks a lot like the skull thing from Spinal Tap too, with the horns that they had. But to me, what's even better than Spinal Tap is what they call Bad News Tour. And that's from the guys at Comic Strip Live from England. The same guys that did the Young Ones. If you've never seen Bad News Tour, you got to watch it. It's, it's British humor, but it's just as funny, if not funnier. I mean, you got to really, you keep watching it over and over and you catch another new thing every time you see it. But I saw that first with the Black Crows and... We were all on the floor of the bus laughing so hard at that. We just happened to find this tape on the bus and stuck it in. What's bad news tour? The next thing you know, we were playing it almost every night. <laughs> it's just funny you were a part of something. It's become so iconic with that. Uh, <laughs> well, this know, is, this is Final Tap. The Motley Crue video, Home Sweet Home, I'm in that video. I was on that tour, not for the whole tour, but for about a month of it because so, uh, another guy got hurt. So they sent me out there to uh, replace him until he could get better. And uh, if you've seen the Home Sweet Home tour at the very beginning, they show it all, all the, the show, like going together really, really fast, like the films really, really sped up. I'm in that. You just can't see me because it's moving too fast. Well, when were you with, when, what tour, so what year were you with Judas Priest? Priest, I did 84, 86, and 88. Defenders, Turbo, and Ram It Down. Okay, sweet. But remember, yeah. I was not the engineer at the time. I wasn't mixing the band. I was a sound technician then. 
So when you say Eric Clapton, all these bands, I was just on the crew working with the sound system, hanging it up, making it work. Oh, but what happened was, is you get these opening bands that come in and they are sometimes travel light without a sound man. So that's when I would get my opportunities to mix. So like Dave said, uh, early on, man, like one of the first ones was Crocus. And uh, wasn't there, there was a guy from Memphis that played, two of them that played from, uh, from with Crocus, uh, the bass player and the drummer. They were both Memphians way back then. But Crocus, uh, you know, that. but for me, you know, I've been watching these other guys mix, but there's one thing about watching it, and then when you're, like, put at the controls of a, a Ferrari, let's call it, a big monster, and you're in a big room, and the hard thing with the opening bands is the room's not full like it is with the main act. So you're in these big coliseums, you know, trying to, it's really mixing in a big room is not the easiest thing in the world to do. And so like nowadays I do the recording thing more because, you know, there is no live sound now and uh, it's so much easier. It's like well, everything here, every little thing, you know, but doing it live, there was a big learning curve for me, but you know, uh, I, I faked my way through it in the beginning and there were some red lights flashing and stuff, but I eventually some of the guys that I work with, you know, Jeff, you might want to watch what you're doing here or there, you know, and I'd take their advice and, you know, had some guidance and, you know, had to be humble about it and uh, just kept trying. So one guy told me once the best advice I ever got is like, don't even look at where the knobs are. Don't be obsessed with that. Just make it sound right. So there you go. When you're working with the opening bands and you're learning and you're, you're cutting your teeth in this, what is the what were the limitations that you dealt with as far as sound? Because you, know, you always hear that. I know you're talking about you've you've got a limited. There's not a lot of people in in the arena yet, but they don't get the same sound, the same volume. Well, as, I tell an empty room is with a big system and and a, and, a, and a powerful system. If you try to beat the room hard with the system, it's gonna the room's probably going to end up winning. So it's, it's natural. I mean, it's a natural progression. No one wants to hear the first band louder than the main band. And I have heard that before, uh, just because maybe the show wasn't that well organized. I've heard of some tours where maybe the opening band had to deal with, you know, a lot of compression and the, the main engineer, the band for coming down from the management, from the main act, they don't get to, some people say they turn off stuff. That never happens. They just turn it down, you know, at uh, at the main output or something. But I've always usually had pretty good luck with that. I try to be. Uh, <laughs> I tell you what, in this business, the main thing you got to learn is your people skills. Because if you don't got no people skills, you ain't going to get nowhere in the first place. But uh, well, you yeah. you, you did work for the crows for ten years. Yeah, and I mean. <laughs> Some people told me when I first got the job, they were like, we're going to take bets on how long you last with them, you know? And I was like, thanks a lot, you know? But I've always managed, no matter who I work for, I managed to hang out for a while, no matter what. Even with the Crows, sometimes, I mean, with my career, 10 years, I almost sometimes think, what if I would have done five and then tried to get into something different? Because I think maybe I got pigeonholed as a the loud guy from the black crows, you know? <laughs> well, let's, let's go back. Let's go back to the kind of those, the, the early days with like priest and, and stuff. You, you've telling us beforehand that you actually got to play bass with Motley Crue during a sound check one time. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was on the 85 tour and one day, uh, 
Tommy Lee, you know, he was such an easy guy to hang around. You know, he would always be floating around. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, The Dirt, the movie. Yeah. That, 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 that one section of the movie when it's like a day of Tommy Lee is so funny, man. And that's him. I mean, he was just always just bouncing off the walls and, and always happy and fun, you know. Uh, but, yeah, we were uh, somewhere. And uh, someone said, hey, Jeff, what are you doing? I said, nothing. They said, uh, they want you to come up to the stage. I was like, what? And they said, they want you on the stage. And I said, everything's okay, right? And I go, yeah, this, they need you. And I was like, okay. So I went up there, and they are like, uh, Nikki's not here right now. Can you play some bass with these guys so they can get their levels right? And I was like, oh, okay. And then Tommy's looking at me, and I'm looking at him. And at the time, we liked, we really liked this CD called Scritty Politty, Cupid and Psych, 85. I don't know if you've ever heard that CD mm-hmm. or music. It's kind of dance music, but it's it was like new with like all these drum machines. It was very uh, dynamic sounding, you know. You got to check it out. They had a, Their hit song was called Perfect Way. And you've probably heard it on the radio, but it just had a really massive sound and all these really cool grooves and stuff. So he's like... Squeeze plenty. And I looked over and we started jamming on this riff from a song called Woodbees, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it didn't last very long, but, you know, it just so happens I was a guy that uh, he can play bass. So, uh, you know, like with Clapton, my dad was up there and uh, he wanted to hear it out front. And I was standing up on the stage and Eric's standing down on the front lip of the stage, closer to the front. So uh, dad gives me the nod to walk over. So I did. And he like basically hit the open note and then took the bass off and handed it over to me. So I just kept chiming in and kept going with it. And dad went down and walked out in front of the stage to listen through the sound system. And Eric looks up and sees him out there, got surprised all of a sudden, turned around and looked at me. He's like, wow, I didn't even hear the difference. (laughs) So that was fun. Now, like when you're with Motley Crue, did they know who your dad was? Oh, yeah. You know, but the thing was, is I was never the kind of guy that would announce that shit. You know, people would find out through the grapevine one way or another. And I like it that way. I like people to know me and, and like me for me, not because my dad was him. You know, that that's always a, a huge bonus, but it's a better bonus when they find out. And I didn't tell him myself, you well, know, so well, I, you, you said that Chris Robinson freaked out when he realized who your dad was. Yeah, it took him about a week, I think, to finally find out or figure it out. And then one day he came over and he's like, you son of a bitch <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. Your dad's duck. And I was like, yeah, and he is a fucker. <laughs> OK, Chris. All right. Yeah. So when do you when do you get your first kind of kind of big gig actually mixing sound? Instead of just, yeah. you know, being an assistant. So with, I was working with Tasco Sound pretty much exclusively because they were, it was like a kind of a deal with the devil, man. They would just keep you busy. If you wanted to go from one tour to the next, no problem. They wanted you to do that, actually. There was a couple of times where I did say, I just can't, I got to stop for a little while. And I did. And then it was a little hard to get back in the groove again, you know, because it's like payback time. You know, if you're going to take a break on us and, and make us have to struggle because, you know, guys like me were pretty valuable uh, having guys that know how to do that stuff and, and reliable, too. So, 
but the first band was a band called Femme Fatale. And they were like a metal band, hair metal band, about 1987. And they had a girl lead singer uh, named Lorraine Lewis. And uh, they they had this hit, their so-called hit, was called The Big One. Uh, and uh, we were opening for Cheap Trick. So, and we were doing clubs. So for me, doing opening for Cheap Trick, this is my first tour is like mixing. So opening for Cheap Trick was pretty fun and easy because I was used to that sound in a big room and also I had a big desk to use what I was used to but then we'd go in these crappy little clubs with crappy little PAs and a crappy little board and it's like oh it's a more of a struggle to get that big sound you know and there was a little bit of a learning curve too you know because I'd never really done the club circuit before I'd always done the big places so uh, now I'm kind of learning once more, but you know, I knew what to do. So, uh, you know, it was a fun tour, man, that tour, we, uh, oh, I lost my voice on that tour. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever had a thing where you lose your voice for like more than a week, but mm-hmm. I lost my voice for like almost a month. So I'm like out there, I couldn't get my voice back. And I'm at the soundboard with my talk back. I'm like, Kick! one, two, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, finally, it came back eventually. But, uh, you know, when you're out there working, there's no days. You can't call in sick when you're on the road. So that, I just had to stick it out and do it. But uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, the tour manager on that was a guy named Will Fright, who I saw later with the Black Crows. He was with Jimmy Page and when we did the Black Crows and Jimmy Page. So that's another fun thing about the business, too, is you meet people. And then down the road, you might be someplace. It's happened to me numerous times. I'll be in a room like early in the morning getting some coffee, like with a foggy head looking at some guy and he's looking at me and we're kind of scowling at each other because we're both grumpy and tired. And then I'll look at him a little more. I go, Oh, Gary, fuck. How you been? <laughs> so that happened to me at, uh, when we did the thing with the crows at the, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Abbey road studio. You know, so it's just a, it's a small world, but a big world at the same time. But yeah, Femme Fatale was the first one, did them. Then I went on, uh, then I was back out again on a, on a tour as a, as a rigger again, or a tech with Cinderella, Bullet Boys, and Winger. So I did that tour, and I was just starting to feel... What was, what was, what was, what was that tour like? It was fun. It was, it was a hard tour, uh... They wanted to make some money, right? So they were doing like five in a row. And there was a couple of shows we had to pull, maybe one, maybe two, uh, at the last minute because Tom Kiefer, I, I'm sure you've heard him and how he sings. Mm-hmm. You know, he couldn't sing, and the doctor said, you better not sing tonight, so we had to pull the plug. But on the other hand, we were doing, say, five shows in a row which most bands will do three and then a day off and then two, then three or three, 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 maybe four, but five and a day off, then five more. But on the other hand, the production manager at the end of that fifth show, he'd walk around and hand everyone a fresh hundred dollar bill. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. Thanks for sticking it out. Okay, let's do it again. You know, <laughs> well, but uh, it was a fun tour and, uh, well, let me let me. I got I got a quick question though for you. Um, I know Winger gets made fun of a lot, a lot because of Beavis and Butthead, and the Kip Winger was in Playgirl and stuff like that. 
but I always hear other musicians that that know what they're talking about say that they are just we're head and shoulders more talented than just about anybody else. And you've obviously oh, yeah. been you've obviously been around music music all your life. Do you do you do you think they were that talented? Well, I have to say this: they sounded damn good, man. They had Oris Henry was their engineer back then. Oris still mixes today uh, when when touring's out there, and I see Oris on Facebook. But uh, man, when they came out, they had they had ramps and shit on the stage. He had the wireless mic and and the wireless bass, and he was running around. It was almost like it was pretty fucking amazing what those guys did. And I still hear the song like 17 on the radio and listen to the production of it. And I'm like, yeah, man, it's almost a little bit like progressive rock meets heavy rock in a way, you know, with the weird drum, uh, the off time drum beats. Well, the drummer, he was, he was a jazz trained drummer, correct? Right. Right. But yeah, they were, they were fun. But what happened was I was starting to get a little bummed, not bummed out, just, felt like I was starting to spin spin the wheels because I got to go out and mix this band and then I was like still now I'm hanging PA again so the tour was going to be in LA in two weeks and that's where the shop was that's where I lived at the time and I called Tasco up and I said look I want to get off the road when we get to LA so if you want to send out a replacement a little ahead of time I can train them up until LA you know for say the last four days before I get off, get off the bus. So they did. And we did that. And, uh, I got home and, you know, they weren't happy with me for doing that. And, uh, the engineer for Cinderella, he's a great guy. His name's Lori Quigley, an Australian guy. He works for Lenny Kravitz now, I'm pretty sure. And, uh, he's like a dad to me pretty much, but, uh, he wasn't happy that I left the crew because, you know, we liked each other and stuff, but I just felt like I needed to stand up for myself somehow, you know? So what happened was, uh, I'm home. I had some money saved up cause I've been working my tail off and I bought a motorcycle. I'm riding this brand new motorcycle. I come home, the phone rings and it's the manager of the bullet boys. So what happened was right before I left the tour, David Kerr, was the engineer for the Bullet Boys. He was leaving to go do another new band called Guns N' Roses. So he, uh, I told David, I said, if you leave, put my name in the hat for this because I love the band. I, I was a big fan of the Bullet Boys back then. I'll admit it. I am a bit of a metalhead. And me and a bunch of my other friends liked that kind of raw sound they had. You know, it's like, like, you know, every, I think a lot of people liked them back then. So, uh, and still do today, as a matter of fact. But anyway, um, so I get the call to go do Bullet Boys as their engineer. So I'm back out on the same tour with an upgrade, you know. <laughs> and it worked out good, too, because, you know, at first it was hard, a little tough at first when I saw Laurie because he's, you know, a, kind of a formidable Australian guy that you don't want to mess around with. But uh, some days we'd come in, we'd show up at about noon, and they'd be running behind in there, so I could always walk over and help pitch in and help them get the, the speakers off the ground and up into the air, you know. So I was able to stay friendly with everyone, and and uh, but I felt like now I'm starting to build it up, you know. So I did them for the rest of that tour. Then we did a bunch of uh, a UK tour. Uh, they called it Around the World in 180 Days because that's from the start to the finish. They we went to Hawaii japan everywhere uh then we came home and that was it for the bullet boys because they were going to go do their new record 
So then I got hooked up with a band called Company of Wolves, and they were reviewed with the Black Crows in Rolling Stone along with the London Choir Boys. It was a three-way uh, review of, of all three albums together because they were all similar. So I'm out with Company of Wolves for a long time. They were managed by the same guy that managed Cinderella, Larry Mazur. And uh, so... We'd go out for a while, and then we'd come home for a break or thinking it's over, but then they would go back out again, get more tour support. But we were aware of the Black Crows because the drum tech had the Black Crows tape on the bus, and he loved the Black Crows. But the Company of Wolves, uh, you know, they're great guys and a great band, too. They just didn't care for them because that's kind of their competition in a way, which it is. So, but anyway, the Company of Wolves finally came to an end, and lo and behold, two weeks later, I get a call from Tasco. Uh, Black Crows are looking for an engineer. Would you be interested? I'm like, hell yes. That's exactly what I want. I was really looking for that band that could carry me, or, and, or we could carry each other, so to speak. So what happened with the Crows was they sent me to see them at uh, Universal Amphitheater, and I was like uh, undercover. They wanted me to sit behind the board and watch what the other guy did who was about to be fired and, uh, and just watch the show and get familiar with it. Then I'd pick up with them. The next day they were at Arsenio Hall. That was my first show with them. So really at that show, I didn't have a lot to do. TV shows, they usually do everything. Oh, you tell them kind of what you want. So I'm telling them what I want, not really even knowing what I want yet, because I never mixed them before yet, you know, but I faked it, you know. But the funny thing was, I remember meeting Chris, you know, and them, and they were really different and outgoing. Chris is like, so Jeff, uh, do you smoke pot? And he's like, if you say no, you're not going to keep working for us. You know, I was like, okay, Chris, I smoke pot. <laughs> Yeah, one of them kind of days where we're just hanging around and laughing a lot. But uh, was, was anyway. this Shake Your Moneymaker Toms? Yeah, the very first one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is before they even had Eddie Harsh in the band, just guitars, two guitars, bass, drums, and Chris. And, uh, but yeah, that was, that was kind of for me my uh, long rides, start of a very long 10 year ride with the Black Crows. So that was uh, just a super memorable experience where we did all kinds of neat stuff and just, I mean, so much excitement and, uh, you know, just hard to put it all. I'm just lucky to be alive to make it through all that and still be alive now, to be honest. Uh, but after that, the uh, I was getting tired of being on the road a lot, you know. I mean, I've been kind of a road dog now for about twenty years. Well, well, hey, hey, before before we get to after that, your your last run with them was the Jimmy Page tour, right? Right. Good. Yeah, last show I did with them, I think, would would have been the Jay Leno show, which was before Jimmy went, flew back to England. What was then, real, what was that like? I mean, obviously, you grew up at a time when Led Zeppelin was king, and here you are mixing oh, mixing Jimmy Page. It was awesome. I mean. We, we kind of caught wind of it early. You know, what happened was they, it started out as a benefit thing, right? You know the story, mm -hmm. don't you, Dave? Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of a loose thing at first. They were doing some benefit over in England. So we went over there, and they played with them. I forget the name of the place. It wasn't very big, but it was jam-packed. <laughs> but uh, from that, that, I guess they decided to do more stuff. 
so then we ended up, I remember one of the funniest things I ever, or one of the most memorable, I mean, like raising the hair on your back was we, we had a little rehearsal with Jimmy and it was in this kind of not the greatest rehearsal place in London, but you know, it's hard to find big rooms over there, but uh, you know, Jimmy's in there and just, I'm hearing Jimmy page, like coming through his amplifier. There's no microphone in, even in front of it. I'm just like, God, listen to that. And he's like, his guitar tech's name, nickname is Binky. Uh, Clive Brinkworth is his real name. Love Binky. He's great. He's like, so Binky, where's me theremin? And then Binky rolls out this high watt with a theremin on top of it, you know, and he starts, woo, making, doing that stuff. It's just like, wow. <laughs> it's like the time I was, when I worked at SIR in New York and Brian May strapped his guitar on and plugged into a rental Vox AC30 and instantly, I mean, as soon as it came on, it was that unmistakable Brian May sound. You know, you just, it's like to hear it in real life is like just a, it, it surrounds you. It, it, it grabs you. But uh, yeah, that, that was. Uh, so, yeah, that was it. Yeah. The uh, we did the, the whole thing. And then we were in. Um, we did it. Jimmy took a break because he was having back problems. And then we had to go back out again. And I remember it because I had this huge board called a Midas XL4, which I loved. But uh, it was big and heavy. And the one that they sent me back out it was not the same board. Uh, the one that I had, I, I tried to request. They didn't do anything with it and leave it shut so that all the knobs are where they should be when we start back up again. You know how many knobs are on one of them damn things. This is before digital boards. So anyway, uh, the board, they sent me they sent me a new board and then a piece of paper with all these markings where they charted the old board. So we're in Albuquerque in high altitude. Uh, the night before my flight was late, Steve Gorman was on the same flight with me. We didn't get there until like 2.30 in the morning, and my call was at 7 a.m., so... It's really hot out. The sun's really bright. I can't even see the lights on the board. I'm trying to set these knobs. We did it. We did the show. Then the next day, we're in L.A., and we're doing Jay Leno, and uh, we're there. And I was asking the tour manager, Amy, about the next day because we're supposed to be at the Hard Rock in, in Las Vegas, which isn't the biggest place in the world. And the stage isn't either. And we were trying to figure out who the opening act was or if there even was one. So I kept saying to her, like, uh, can you find out who? what's the deal on that? Because we need to know. And she seemed preoccupied. I did. I, now looking back, I see what was going on. She already knew it. Um, but they did the taping of the show. And then we're like sitting on the bus afterwards and we're getting ready, you know, like thinking everything's cool. Then she comes on the bus. She goes, well, guys, uh, Jimmy's got to go back to England. His back is not right. And uh, we're just, we're all flying home tomorrow. I'm booking you all flights now. And it was like, what? Wow. So that's what happened. It was just like the plug was, we got home. We had about a month off, I think it was. And then she said uh, they were going to send me some paperwork to sign because the tour was going to just not go anymore but there was a little bit of an insurance settlement for it so i had to fill out some paperwork and uh to get some back pay for what i was committed to be doing you know which is standard but anyway yeah it just kind of screeched out and then 
they decided later they were going to go back out. Oh, they went into rehearsals. <laughs> and I was like uh, one of the guys that happened to live in New York. So I kind of got roped into doing that. And I just wasn't really feeling it anymore. So uh, I guess you could say it kind of faded out on both ends. And after 10 years, that's long enough. But, you, I mean, you're still on good terms with Chris and Rich, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've gone to see him a few times. And uh, it's been a long time now. But I text with Chris here and there. We usually just joke around about funny stuff that we always laughed at and things like that. But, yeah, I'm in touch with him, sure. So of all the bands you've worked with and everything, who was the most difficult to mix? From like not not from like a personality standpoint, just from like a sound standpoint. Well, the Crows were one of the hardest ones because they were just loud, very loud, and and a lot of energy too. So and, when you mix the Crows, did you just take Rich and turn him up to ten and just walk away? Because <laughs> that's <laughs> well, it all starts up there basically. So the best way I can tell you is here, here's my best story for that. So you're in a, in a place like a shed, an indoor outdoor. You know you know what a shed mm-hmm. is. It's like a, an outdoor amphitheater. So you got the first say five or seven thousand people are under a roof, and then you got a lawn up beyond that. Well, all these places, most every one of them has a sound limit, dB limit, because there's people around there that don't want to hear it, right? So I found out uh, on one tour the hard way. The noise police showed up like at the first gig. We just come in from England or Europe. We're kind of throwing it up the next day in the States. And all of a sudden the noise police is coming down on me like in the during the first song. And I'm just like, where were you early? You know, where did you come from? And, and why didn't anyone tell me? You know, but I always deflect them. I always just tell them, you go tell my manager this is their name. Tell them if they tell me to turn it down, I will. So that always gets them to go away from you. And and then I'll, I'll try to work with it. But still, it's hard to do when when the bottom line is this. The next day, I told the tour manager or that night, I said, tomorrow, I want the uh, the noise police to be there during sound check at four o'clock so I can see what he's getting on his meter so I can be prepared. So he did. He came out. The band starts playing up on stage. Uh, I look over at him. He's smiling. He goes, dude, you're totally fine. You're right at 101. The limit is 102, right? I said, all right, let's turn the PA on now. That was with the PA. (laughs) That's just them and all their monitors up there on stage making all that noise. I mean, it's and all you hear up there is like a lot of guitar and instruments, and you can barely hear Chris because, you know, all his monitors are facing back at him. But, uh, yeah, it was just a struggle sometimes because it's just like a funnel, you know. If you pour the water in at the right speed, the funnel works great. But if you pour the water in too fast, it's going to not be able to handle it, and it comes out over the edge. So you end up doing uh, a little bit of uh, what I would call defensive mixing instead of offensive mixing. But I'll have to say, whenever I did get to work with some other bands, man, it was just like, wow. It's, it's like being handed to me on a silver platter. Uh, one band I'll have to say was Big Country. I got to work with them from Scotland in 93. Those guys were incredible, man. They could sing great and they had those guitar sounds going on and just harmonizing and really just super tight, man. And uh, 
another band I got to work with that was a lot of fun was the Brand New Heavies. They were, uh, you know, like soul, uh, funk. Uh, they're, you know, with horns and keyboards and all that kind of stuff. So I've been at, and, you know, and I also worked at uh, the House of Blues in L.A. and B.B. King's in West Palm Beach. So working in places like that, then you get to mix all these other different bands just for one night. I got to mix James Brown one night, you know? Wow. He was very mixed because his voice was just, I was like, what do I do with that? (laughs) But it was fun as hell, you know, really fun. It's just, I I was like, just, I I just kind of make it, make it where you can hear them. Oh, I have to say there was one time Eric Clapton sat in uh, with Jimmy Vaughn when he was opening for Bob Dylan. So I knew Eric was coming out, and they had a spare, uh, you know, a guest guitar amp set up for him and a guest microphone. And I'm sitting out there with my hands on Eric's faders, you know, first the guitar fader because that's what he's going to do first. And I swear, man, that guitar started playing. I'm just like, it doesn't need a damn thing. It's just oh, so good. And then he stepped up to the mic, and I got my hand on that fader, and he starts singing, and I'm just like. Oh man, I had to like pull it down a little bit. I'm like, shit. And I always heard the guy say, Eric has a very powerful voice. I really got it then because I never mixed him before. But uh, it was just like, you know, it was just like I said, handed to me. So, you know, I think uh, there's a lot to be said for maybe a little education and playing live to make it the best it can be so that the engineer can take it from there and, and really put the icing on the cake. Ever a tour you were offered, you turned down, that now you look back on, kick yourself over? Let's see. Not that I can think of. I have turned down a couple just because they tell you one thing, and then as you get closer to it, they start saying, well, now it's not going to be a bus. It's going to be a van with a trailer or something behind it. And it's like, uh-uh. <laughs> want to drive a van you know mm-hmm. and i've done plenty of that too i don't do that anymore but i've worked with some small bands too and had a lot of fun with them too there was one band i worked with back in 2008 called switches they were a british band and they were kind of a, a emo sort of power pop sort of thing but they were very talented too it was like Kind of like big country, me and the the monitor engineer, we all, we always called them kind of like our secret weapon because they were just so they could sing so good and play so tightly. It was just like, man, it's just uh, easy to do. But uh, no, if I did turn down any, they probably weren't notable names, uh, and maybe uh, or and even if it was, it was just they were trying to do it, make a comeback or something on a super low budget. So okay, I've, I've also tour managed and done sound. I've done tour managing, tour managing and sound, and just sound. If I had to do anything today, I'd want to just do sound because tour managing is just not much fun. I always used to say when when I'm doing both, if I'm tour managing, uh, then the, the the console's feeding back, and if I'm at the console, the phone's always ringing. You know, so it's kind of like, and really, you're you got to babysit a lot. I mean. One of the things I hated the most as a tour manager is you pull into a truck stop. Most everyone gets off the bus like they should as soon as you get there so that we can keep moving along. Go in there, take care of your business, and get back on. 
everyone's getting back on and some guy comes out of his bunk rubbing his eyes like well i'm gonna go in now it's like why didn't you go in there 15 minutes ago you better be back here in five otherwise you're gonna get what we would call the oil spot you know which is where the bus used to be jeff why don't you tell everybody kind of what you're up to these days and then about the soul fingers book yeah um well lately i've just been you know there's no live thing going on but i kind of dropped out of that um even before then um but yeah the soul fingers book it's been out now uh we just it was four years ago now that we recorded the music for it and uh there was a gentleman by the name of nick rosacci he's the guy he's the author of the book and he did a great job with it uh we got it out four years ago it's on amazon uh dot com and everywhere else you can buy books uh, it's part biography and part base book. It comes with a link so you can hear 28 tracks. And uh, actually, I've been playing with some of those tracks lately because the tracks in the book are band on the left and bass on the right. That way you can either pinpoint the bass or the band or both. So you can either play along or just learn the bass riff. But I took a few of them and... Uh, made them into stereo tracks uh like a regular mix and man they sound really good (laughs) uh but uh yeah it's it's been doing well actually uh the last report that we got uh it kind of jumped up about 50 percent of what it had done before and i've been making a bigger effort now too Uh, i was always a little more bashful being from memphis and a little shy about things but uh I'm just kind of sticking my neck out more now and trying to uh, advertise more online and, uh, you know, just put it out there. Because if you don't, people just don't know. I mean, there's been a lot of people, I'll mention the book, musicians even, and they're mainly musicians. And, oh, I didn't know there was a book. Oh, yeah, there is, you know. Tell me where to find it. So, you know, there's always another person out there that needs to know. And we also have uh, merch for Dad, too, T-shirts and stuff like that. Uh really all kinds of stuff coffee mugs clocks coasters you know you name it um and that's at uh it's at uh redbubble.com guitar gtr happy and uh there we have all kinds of stuff and uh really the best way to go uh is uh there's a website duckdone.com there's a whole bunch of them there's duck done remembered on facebook Usually through any of those, you can get to the next thing and find out or just do a search on Google. Uh, And I also have my little business, which is called Hawkeer Entertainment. And basically what that is, is just anything that has to do with uh, dad's business in the future, whether it be, you know, representation of him for any kind of film or whatever it might be and uh, stuff like that. I also have a music thing where i have some uh collaborations going on with a few different musicians i mean nowadays we can do it all one guy's in denver and one's over in arizona but uh, it doesn't matter anymore with email we can send files back and forth and uh that that band is uh we haven't named it yet but it's going to be i think a little bit of a like a a barnyard rock sort of thing which is going to have like a little bit of a southern country sort of flair to it but kind of heavy at the same time, you know, maybe slightly raw. Uh, on that, I'll probably end up playing some bass on that too. So, uh, you know, uh, there's that. Last year I made 
six bases because I was bored <laughs> out of parts. I just got my fingers in a lot of different stuff, really. And, uh, you know, uh, whether it be with instruments or, you know, representation, consulting, whatever it is, you know, that's um, I've got a lot of experience in the music industry. We're also talking about maybe uh, a few things. Uh, one idea is possibly maybe a barbecue sauce uh Duck Dunn's bar- Soul Fingers barbecue sauce. So, uh, well, you are from Memphis. That's yeah. right. And Sounds he, appropriate. Yeah, he used to cook really good ribs, and and I know how he would make a sauce too. He would, you know, combine some things in a pan and cook it in a pan first. So, uh, <laughs> I can just picture that that picture of him from uh, the Blues Brothers movie with the red tux on from the Murph and the Magitones in the Holiday Inn with the pipe. You know, where he said we can turn goat piss into gasoline. That could maybe that picture could be on the label, possibly. Was <laughs> there's all kinds of things, but yeah, you know, luckily for me too, I need to just give a shout out to all my network of friends out there because for me, you know, I've tried. Luckily for me, I've been able to travel. So most all the people I deal with, they're not here. They're like scattered everywhere. You know, my good friend Mike Strick, the engineer over Miami, he's my go-to guy, if I ever need any help with my computer or, or my Pro Tools rig or whatever, he, or, or maybe an opinion on a mix, you know. Is, and then I got, you know, another guy who's really good about the history of Booker T and the MGs and, and a big fan of my dad. So sometimes he finds these cool pictures. You know, we just constantly an exchange of information through all these different people I know and if I'm trying to do something, if I ever hit a, a tough spot, I usually know one guy that's like an expert in that little area that can help me out, you know? So I know some stuff, but I don't know everything. Uh, but uh, with a little help from my all my good friends out there that I've gotten to know over the years, you know, uh, it really makes it a, a family affair, you know? Well, you did, t- before we wrap it up, you did tell me you wanted to t- tell a story about sitting on the side of the stage and some of the guys from Metallica and everybody else watching your dad and kind of geeking out over him. Yeah. Yeah. That was so fun. That tour, uh, we were, uh, doing festivals over in Europe. Was this with the crows? With the black yeah. crows. And, and, and we had already been playing with Metallica on a few shows before. So the thing I used to do for fun before we got with Neil Young, which is a show you're talking to, was whenever Metallica would start playing, you know where I was? I was on the wing of the stage standing by the PA amplifiers because I wanted to watch them when the show started because Big Mick's out there mixing them. He's been with them for years. The biggest crowd response I've ever felt in my life that scared the shit out of me actually was Metallica, Master of Puppets, opening for Ozzy at the Meadowlands. And they were still opening then. They they hadn't started headlining yet, but Master of Puppets had just come out. Man, when they hit, I'd never heard a crowd overcome a heavy metal PA before. And they did, man. It was just a... Like, man, these people are serious about this thing. <laughs> but uh, when Metallica would hit, I would uh, always be standing by the amplifiers because, man, when they would start those, ampl- those big Crown 5000 VZs, they'd be lighting up like Christmas trees. Get it, Big Mick, get it! <laughs> and the stage would shake like crazy. But, uh, yeah, th- that day, uh, Neil Young and Booker T and the MGs were on the bill with us, Metallica and Lenny Kravitz. 
and probably in one other band. And I just remember like, uh, you know, hanging out with dad backstage and people walk by and say hi to him, you know, make sure to make a point of it. And, uh, you know, so uh, when they hit the stage, all the other bands were up on the side of the stage there watching them. The Black Crows, Lenny Kravitz and his band and Metallica, them guys were there. And they were just soaking it in, you know, and I was just like, wow, man, I get to, you know, I, I just, it was probably one of the proudest times I've ever felt with my dad, you know, at that time, just, uh, and being a part of the show too. I'm like, I'm not just there watching, I'm, I'm working too, but on a, with another band, you know, not his band, but somebody else. So it was just like, wow, you know, we kind of crossed paths and then we said goodnight and off they went and off we went, you know. Well, it's just kind of cool that some of your, to see some of your idols idolizing your old man yeah yeah i mean that's a cool thing and and, you know dad he was really known as a more of a character than a bass player in a way uh the last time i saw dad was at the tom petty show in estero florida it was two weeks in two it was in 2012 probably about the beginning of march or beginning of may because he passed away on may 12th so this would have been at the end of april so we went there, we met him there, and Tom actually came backstage or came into the room and the rest of the band, and they all hung out. And uh, there's a guy that, uh, I don't know if you ever met Andy Tennille, but Andy's one of Tom's main guys. Andy told me that Tom and the band never say hi to anyone before the show and hardly ever after either. So they made an exception for that. We got some pictures there. That was a picture that you saw, Dave, uh, uh, which is on my uh, hog, or on my YouTube page. Uh, we're we're standing there, but uh, yeah, uh, that and it was right when Levon Helm had died. So the weird part was where Tom took a minute between songs during the show, and he said, "You know, I just want to say uh, sorry to see that Levon Helm had passed away." And I don't know if you guys knew that dad worked with Levon back with the RCO All-Stars before he started doing the Blues Brothers thing for a couple years. So, you know, we were just kind of, yellow Levon, you know, I just had no idea at that time he was going to be gone. Then like a week later, before a week before he flew to Japan, I had this dream where uh, I was on tour. We were in the lobby of a hotel in Japan and the guys were saying, hey, Jeff, you want to come with us to go do some sightseeing? And I said, no, I got to go visit the hotel where my dad passed away. And that was before it happened. So a week later, I'm at B.B. King's in West Palm Beach mixing at 11.55 at night. And I get a, a my phone's vibrating in my pocket. It was my mother calling me, my mom. And uh, she was... Uh, so I couldn't answer it because it was too loud, but it, we're about to take a break. So 10 minutes later, I called her back and she goes, I think something's going on with, with your dad. And I was like, what's going on? And she goes, I don't know. It's, I'm getting something's going on. So I texted my buddy, Mike Strick in Miami, who's, who was my backup, uh, my other engineer there and still a great friend of mine. I just said, Mike, can you go online and do some research for me? So he did. Because the band, and, and and then I went and told the band leader what was going on. He goes, oh, you call Mike and have him come in. You go home. I, I said, I, I don't know what to do with myself right now. I said, I'm already here. You got one more set left. I'll just sit out there. And, and I, right now, I'd rather just sit at the soundboard and push faders around. Because that's about all I feel like doing right now. So they started playing. And 
while they were playing, Mike was texting me and saying, yeah, it looks like something did happen. So uh, it was a shocker. It really was. But I almost kind of felt it in a way. You know, he did he did five sh- five days in a row, two shows a night. But he got there the day before, so he wasn't fully acclimated with the time change. They suggested he go see a doctor because he was saying he didn't feel that great. But uh, he... Uh, he said, I'll go see my doctor as soon as I get home, but he didn't make it. He passed away in his room that night uh, before he flew home, was supposed to fly home the next day. So that night at the Tom Petty show, we were on my friend's bus because uh, he worked with Regina Spector, the opening act. His name is Keith Nelson. He's another great friend of mine, and sometimes Keith gives me some good information too. Uh, he... Uh, we were on the bus and, you know, the concert was still just let out, you know, the cars everywhere. And dad said, well, let's get on the road. And I was like, you sure, dad? I said, there's a lot of traffic out there. He goes, oh, yeah, let's get going. You know, I was like, OK, then, you know, we can't hang out here. Wait it out a little longer. And he goes, yeah, I'm ready to get going. I said, all right. So we we're in the car and we we're stuck in traffic. And dad's dad's sitting in the back seat and he goes, this damn traffic, man, you know, what the hell, you know, I go, dad, I'm sorry, but I, I know you're used to having a police escort or maybe a helicopter or something like that, but we just ain't got that right now. And he goes, fuck you, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. Well, he was that on was tour it. with Steve Cropper when he died, right? Yeah, they were, it was a, like a stacks review and they were making it up from uh, the tsunami. They were supposed to be there back then. So this was really a makeup show that uh, they had to go back and do that got put off for a year, you know? Well, Jeff, uh, as always, I I enjoy talking to you and and, uh, we appreciate you giving us a little bit of time here tonight. And you, uh, you told me there was a song you wanted us to uh, play out with. Why don't you tell everybody what it is? Uh, Yeah, I think uh, some heads are gonna, some heads are gonna, some heads. No, not some heads. We're going to break. We're going to break. We're going to break that law. Is is that what he said on the tour? Well, I, I almost <laughs> said heads are going to roll. That oh. was another. Skit. But yeah, he goes, we're going to break. And he goes, let's break that law. <laughs> but yeah, the track you're going to play, if it's the one I asked for, is uh, from the, they did a live album from that tour, the Turbo Tour in 1986. All right. So, so, so breaking the law, Judas Priest. Yeah, be sure to crank it up. Man, I, I remember like hearing that and seeing those lights doing the police car thing and just being in heaven. Chris, you got no complaints with that pick, do you? No, I don't. I don't. It's reminded me I need to order Halford's book. I still keep forgetting. <laughs> I didn't know he had one. I'll need to get yeah, that. Yeah, Rob Halford had one. came out in about probably the last in this last year. Yeah. All right, everybody. He, he's a great performer, man. I tell you what, that's one guy that – I, I even seeing him every night, he would send chills up my spine just the way he knew how to do that audience thing, man. He was great and still is, you know, i tell you one thing that, that, uh, defenders of the faith tour when he was still drinking, whew, man, he got intense, but you know, it, it's, it's the same time. I'd rather see him look out for his health. <laughs> his, vo- his voice is still so strong. Yeah. Still so strong. Hey, well, Jeff, band. Jeff, as always, it's a pleasure here to play us out, it's Judas Priest breaking the law. Take care, everybody.